It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Harkasy, Pennsylvania, spring of 1975. On the hills of the thoroughbred horse farm owned by farmer Philly slugger Dick Allen. After more than a decade in the majors, a career that included National League Rookie of the Year and American League MVP honors, the baseball legend had retired. A nagging leg injury and a desire to settle down led him back to the quiet life in Bucks County. That is, until one day, a few friends paid him a secret visit. Their names were Richie Ashburn, Mike Schmidt, and Dave Cash. One was a retired Phillies legend. The other two were infielders from the talented young nucleus, ready to take the next step in Philadelphia. They arrived at the farm with one goal, convince Allen to come out of retirement and join the Phillies team in need of a veteran bat. Oh, and no one could know about it. That would be tampering. So if anyone asked, they were just having dinner. They had a real nice barn where the horses, you know, could work out inside. So we went out and uh, spent a few hours with him. We shot some hoops and he had a hoop in his barn. And it was really the first time I had ever met him. That's Hall of Famer Mike Schmidt, who was fresh off his first all-star selection in 1974. I think it was mostly Richie Ashburn that, that put that whole thing together. And Richie said, hey, man, you know, maybe you guys should uh, take some guys and go out and, and talk to him and see if, uh, you know, if he would feel like coming back and playing for the Phillies. He, he was aware of the Phillies and who played on the team. And, you know, he knew about Dave and obviously he knew about me. Uh, you know, as I found out, he had a lot of respect for us. Dave Cash was the Phillies' second baseman. And I was, you know, I was all in for it, you know, because we were building a team and Dick was available. I guess it's a, a lifelong dream to, to have Dick Allen on your side. At least that's the way I thought. Dick hit some of the hardest balls I've ever seen hit. And he was a, a tremendous athlete. But more than that, he was a student of the game, which impressed me a lot uh, when I went to have a chance to have a conversation with him. I tried to convince him that with his help, we had a chance to take the National League East because we were... We were young and talented, and uh, all we needed was a, a strong bat like his to, to be in the middle of our lineup, and it's going to make us a better team. You know, we had a little horse game going, and I can't remember who won, but we had a we had a pretty good time shooting little baskets together. We also went out and walked a few horses around the barn and stuff like that, but most of the conversation was centered around baseball, and we just laid out what we had. You know, he didn't give us one quick answer or anything. He had some questions to ask us, and he asked us about whether we thought the group of guys there were committed to winning. You know, did we did he think we could win? And, of course, you're talking about 75, and we were starting to rise through the National League East at that time. And, yes, we were very much ready to win as a team. After dinner and a full evening on the ranch, 
the three Phillies ambassadors left. Allen gathered his wife, Barbara, and three kids, Button, Terry, and Richard Jr. It was a family decision. Richard remembers it well. He sat myself, my sister, and my brother down, and he said, what do you think? He said, do you think Dad should go back to Philly? And, you know, we were young. We were all like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, all right, so it is. <laughs> but it wasn't an easy decision. Allen was just getting over the effects of his broken leg from two seasons ago. He was also under contract by the Atlanta Braves. But more importantly, Allen was deciding if he wanted to go back to the city that never fully embraced him. One that threatened him viciously and saw the color of his skin before his humanity or even his baseball skills. He had to be uh, encouraged or convinced, or he had to see some motivation for doing that because, you know, his history with the Phillies and the Philly fans surely wasn't that great. To understand why this decision was so emotional and difficult, we have to rewind. Welcome to Leaving a Legacy, the Dick Allen story from Philly's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Howard. Dick Allen is a pillar of Philly's history. He is the first Phillies alum to have his number retired before getting into the Hall of Fame. And he made his mark as the first black superstar in Philly. But Allen didn't have a perfect love affair with the fans. In order to open the door for future generations, he endured hatred and abuse on a constant basis while carving his path in baseball history. He is one of the pioneers who opened the doors for future All-Stars, Rookie of the Year winners, and MVPs like myself. In this podcast, you will hear from teammates, co-workers, and friends who knew Alan best as we remember his remarkable life and career. It was all too common for black players to experience racism and abuse even years after the baseball color barrier was first broken. It began for Allen in his very first days in pro ball. Little Rock, Arkansas, 1963. Deep in the Jim Crow South, the Phillies' new International League affiliate, the Arkansas Travelers, were set to play their first game after months of controversy. The segregated city was barely granted a minor league team due to its citizens' refusal to tolerate integrated baseball. After all, this was just six years after Governor Orville Faubus used the Arkansas National Guard to prevent black and white students from going to school together in Little Rock. But Major League Baseball assured its minor league teams that black players would receive equal treatment. In Wampum, Pennsylvania, Dick Allen was living at home after playing for the Phillies minor league squad in Williamsport. Following a high school career where he dominated in both basketball and baseball, the athletic power hitter was signed by the Philly scout, John Ogden, to a contract with a $60,000 signing bonus. It was negotiated by Allen's mother, Ira. <laughs> yes, I'm laughing because she's no nonsense. <laughs> That's Dick Allen's son. Richard Allen Jr. 
He's heard hundreds of family stories over the years. When his father was informed of the Phillies' decision to send him to Little Rock in 1963, red flags were raised by his family immediately. Before signing, my grandmother did not want him to go. She was afraid for him to leave. She said, no, he can go and right to the middle. He can work and make honest living there. And my uncle Sonny was the one that talked her into letting him go. Then he gets to Little Rock. He told me, he said, when that plane landed, he looked out and saw all those people and the signs and they had the racial slurs and, you know, with the gun and everything. He said, he didn't want to get off the plane. He said, they're going to, they're going to kill me. Someone with the Phillies met him. They got him to where he needed to go, which was the hotel. I believe it was the Holiday Inn. He said he had three days to find housing. And then after that, you're on your own. He could have stayed in the hotel and paid, you know, out of pocket or he had to find a place. Hal Patillo, the father of one of the Little Rock Nine, who fought to integrate a public school in Arkansas, tracked down Allen and gave him a place to stay in his home. He was across town from his other teammates, but at least he was safer. He put the crowd at the airport out of his mind. It was time to play ball. On opening day, Governor Faubus, the well-known segregationist, threw out the first pitch. It seemed strange that he would be honored by the integrated team. It seemed strange that Allen was put in this position to begin with. Decades later, Richard Jr. learned the federal government ordered Arkansas to integrate its new team, or else the state and city government would suffer. They had to integrate. They had to, they had to integrate. And um, if not, they would lose funding. So my father was that, that guy and just to keep the funding for, for Little Rock. So he, he had no, yeah, he had no idea. And I told my father this and uh, my father went, so that's why they left me there. <laughs> Outside, fans viciously protested. They held up signs they called Allen a variety of racial slurs. Inside, white fans made up a vast majority of the segregated crowd. They let Allen know he was not welcome. The first batter lifted the ball to Allen in left field. Nervous and admittedly intimidated by the crowd, he let the ball get over his head and roll to the wall. Boos and jeers rained down. He stared straight and tried to ignore it. At the plate, Allen let his talent do the talking. He doubled twice and singled in the first game of a winning season for the Travelers. It was a rush of emotions. After the final out, Allen sat in the dugout alone. He let the clubhouse clear and he gathered his thoughts. He never dealt with that kind of vitriol and wampum. He played in three minor league cities and didn't get this abuse. Going through this every game? What about going to the store, to the movies? And all was daunting. With his head down, he arrived at his car and he saw a piece of paper on the windshield. Alone in the parking lot, he read the note. It told him to never come back again. It called him the N-word. It sent a clear and this time tangible message. To be in Little Rock, Arkansas, and be black at that time in our country's history, not a good thing. That's Chris Wheeler, 
who worked in the Phillies public relations and broadcasting for more than four decades. You know, to get down there and be the only black player on that team down there with the racism that was in the South at that time, better be careful qualifying at that time, the way things are now. But it was a tough situation now. It's easy to second guess the whole thing, but should the Phillies have put him in that situation? Of course not. But that was their AAA club. And that was the thing you did back then. You kind of advanced. My mother, she went to, um, to go see him in Little Rock. He told her when she got down there, my mother and father both from Pennsylvania, and they, you know, never experienced the Jim Crow laws. She said, your father told me, get everything that you're going to get for the game and everything that you want from the concession and whatever, you know, and I want you to sit right over top of the dugout where I can see you and keep my eye on you. She told me uh, she had to go to the doctor's office and she was down there and she went around lunchtime and they told her, that the, uh, the doctor's not in, he'll be back in an hour. And when you come back, could you use the back door? Yeah, and even for like the movies, they would all have to go to, you know, the theater in groups. <laughs> for my mother, you know, born and raised in Pennsylvania, you didn't see those things. She went, huh, you know, for him, he's there in the hotel, but he wasn't allowed to eat at the hotel. He said, the guy came up with the cart, cracked the door he saw with me, pulled the cart back. He said, Joe Lynette, who was across the hall, ordered room service, and he went over there to eat. That's how he got to eat. Visiting players saw it too, like former Philly slugger Gary the Sarge Matthews. He played for the Amarillo Giants in 1971 and dreaded road games in Little Rock. I have never seen so many monkeys hung on a string and, and the talk and the, and the calling of this where we went from the ballpark to the hotel, vice versa, in Little Rock, Arkansas. I lived that. I lived that. And I didn't even go through an even inkling of what Hammer and those guys went through. So you had to be able to, to deal with that and, and still perform. Dave Cash. It was difficult because it was humiliating, you know. Uh, you know, we're we're down there trying to do something, trying to advance to the next level, and we got people calling us names. And the person in the stands could say almost anything, and they, you know, they, they wouldn't take them out of the stands or anything. It was degrading, and I mean, a person could become very hateful uh, if he let his mind run away from him because of some of the things that uh, that was done and said. You read the history of, the, of this country uh, with race in the '60s; it was awful. Just awful, because what was happening was there was an awakening going on where some people were actually thinking, you know, it's not right that our fellow citizens can't do the things that we can do because we're white and they aren't. So that was, sports got caught up in that, like everything else in the, in the 60s. And uh, he was a very bright, thoughtful guy. And baseball wasn't the only thing to him. There were other things in his life that were important. I think that left a lot of scars what happened to him in Little Rock. I think that was the beginning of some things that would fester later on when he got similar treatment in Philadelphia in the late 60s. Allen's family stayed in Pennsylvania for most of the 1963 season. He didn't want to expose them to what he had endured daily. Like one day during his first week in Little Rock, when Allen was getting a soda from a vending machine, he heard yelling as someone said, There he is! He turned around to see a gun pointed right at his face. It was a cop accusing him of stealing the soda he had just paid for. These incidents 
were constant. I think it was a shock to him uh, because he hadn't heard that in Wampum, Pennsylvania. It, it, just, it just didn't exist. He didn't get treated like that. Alone and scared, it took a call from his mama to keep him going. Here's Alan, in his own words, remembering that phone call. <laughs> I recall her saying, uh, Dick, yes, ma'am. You put that phone to your ear. You hear me? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> How God gave you to me. I've raised you according to his word. He's given you a talent and a place to show it. And don't you let him drive you out. He's given you that talent, and I'm your mother. If you do, you're not being disobedient to me. You're being disobedient to God. Boy, he said, I hung up the phone. I had my little pity party for myself. He said, that was it. And then he never looked back. He said, I, I went there, probably the most hated person. He said, but when I left, I was the most liked person. He helped him win. And they saw what kind of player he was. And, and he said, he, he left uh, the most popular player. He said, so and he said, that's what I got out of that. Allen slugged a team-high 33 home runs with 97 RBI in 1963. He also led the Travelers in hits, runs scored, and OPS. He got the call to make his Major League debut in September of 1963. His year in Little Rock was over. He was set to play a full season in Philly, starting in 1964. As Allen packed his bags and left Arkansas, he planned to never go back. He meant it. I even tried it years later, uh, maybe about four years ago. I uh, I asked him. I said, "Dad, I said, I said, would we just take a ride, a road trip to Little Rock, and you can show me around?" He hung up. He hung up the phone on me. He said, "That's like walking through a graveyard." And he hung his phone up on me. <laughs> Philadelphia, 1964, a fresh start. Phillies fans knew a powerful slugger who lit up spring training was on his way for a full season in Philly. The excitement was palpable, as Chris Wheeler remembers. He was legendary uh, in the minor leagues. His, look, back in those days, we didn't have Comcast Sportsnet televising spring training games. We didn't have radio for the most part. They didn't do that many radio games. You had to use your imagination more than we do now when everything's instant gratification and you could see it. So we had this picture of this great big guy, you know, that was hitting these towering home runs in spring training and we just couldn't wait to see him. Of course, when we did see him finally, he was only 5'10 or 5'11. He wasn't this great big, bigger than life human being. But to us, he became a bigger than life player when we went to see him play finally in 64. Allen was moved to third base for his first full year in the bigs. It was a tough transition for a fielder trying to get his footing, but he didn't miss a beat at the plate. Here's a 3-2 pitch to Allen. This will lead the ball through a home run. Oh, good. A lane drive in the upper deck. Allen puts the Phillies ahead here, 4-3. to three. 18 home runs, 44 RBIs. There she goes. Oh, what a drive! Over the Catholic side. He is too much. And he hits a 3-2 curveball right over the soft side on the roof. Hank Aaron used to hit low bullets. 
Richie Allen used to hit a lot of high home runs. Uh, he would hit them over the roof at Connie Mack. That was our thing. When he would hit one, you've, you've read about it, you've heard about it. It's true. He would hit the ball over the roof at Connie Mack Stadium, over the big signs that were on the, the advertising signs that were on the top of the roof. Larry Shank worked in public relations for the Phillies for more than 50 years. 1964 was his rookie year, too. I didn't travel with the team in, that, in, the, in those days. Um, so I'm watching the game on TV or listening to the radio. They're mostly on radio. I didn't go get something to eat or go to the bathroom when he was coming back. Coach, I didn't want to miss anything. <laughs> Some, Sandy Grady, the, one of the most talented writers I ever saw, he would, he would show up about the fourth inning, had no notebooks, no typewriter or anything. And he walked in the press box and a few innings later, Dick hit this monster home run. He said, how, how far do you think that went? I said, I don't know. Said, Let's go look. So he and I left the ballpark, went down and we're walking behind the left field wall. I forget the name of the street. There was a man sitting on his porch. He said, the ball landed right over there. So <laughs> started walking three foot lengths. <laughs> Scientifically, we came up with 529 feet. I made sure we stayed at 529 whenever I wrote stories or put it someplace. And, and now I StatCast gives you the distance and all that stuff. So it's come a long way. First down, and here's the first one, Allen. Allen was a runaway Rookie of the Year in the National League. The young Phillies were on the rise, leading the league. The first pennant in 14 years seemed like a real possibility. But two major events overshadowed what should have been a warm welcome to the majors. It's unfortunate how history repeats itself, but there's always stuff festering below the surface, and then something, an instant, something can happen to make people feel emboldened. First was a September collapse that made history. The Phillies held a six and a half game lead in the National League pennant race with 12 games to play. Ask an entire generation of Philly fans what happened next and you'll get some colorful and bitter explanations. You know, when you have a six and a half game lead with 12 to play and you lose 10 in a row and somehow it doesn't happen, it was, it was heartbreaking, it was crushing. The Fightins lost 10 games in a row falling into second place at the end of the season. There were no playoffs back then. The season was over. And, and, and in those days, if you, won the, if you won your league, you went to the World Series. It was win the National League. <laughs> Did we count our chickens before they were hatched? Probably because, like I said, six and a half game lead with 12 to play. You have to go into a huge losing streak. To this day, that collapse defines the 1964 season. Not Allen, who, by the way, batted 415 in those 10 crucial games. 
But the collapse was nothing compared to what defined Philadelphia in 1964 off the field. Good evening, 11 p.m. Here is the late hour news, Ed Pettit reporting. What began as a minor traffic dispute last night in the Negro section of Philadelphia has since resulted in rioting and looting with damage running to more than half a million dollars. Despite the efforts of more than 1,500 law enforcement officers, efforts to quell rioting and looting in North Philadelphia have not been successful. A rash of police injuries have been reported, and the arrest total has now climbed above the 200 mark. But as yet, it's been impossible to prevent outbreaks of rock-throwing, looting, window-breaking, and attacks on police. The mayor's curfew imposed on a six-square... Philadelphia was a polarized city back in the 60s. Mike Tolan is a film producer in L.A. and a longtime friend of Alan's. He's currently working on a documentary about the player who was once his boyhood idol. Tolan grew up in the tense Philadelphia 60s. We had a police chief, Frank Rizzo, who became the mayor. It was a law and order society. And it was, uh, let's just say it was a long way from the social justice movement that we find ourselves in in 2021. The violence just blocks away from the Phillies brought racial tensions to a boiling point in Philadelphia. As the 1965 season got underway, it began to infiltrate the Phillies clubhouse, starting with one player, Frank Thomas. Frank Thomas was a real jerk. Chris Wheeler. Most of them didn't like him personally. These are the white guys. Didn't like him personally. And he, of course, uh, you know, back in those days, you, you thought, well, you know, you can say whatever you want to, to the young guy. So he used to say things to, to Dick Allen that, that were out of line. Something like, come here, boy, or bring me this boy, or those kind of things. You know, he was just an agitator with everybody. Larry Shank. And I think he called Dick boy, and that I think the, I think that's what sparked Dick retaliating. You know, well, evidently it, it festered and festered and festered, and he had enough of them. And one night, you know, Richie hit him. Reports indicate that after the name calling and some choice words, Allen was fed up and punched Thomas. Thomas responded by hitting Allen on his right shoulder with his bat before teammates broke up the scuffle. The Phillies took swift action and cut Thomas after the game. They told Allen he couldn't talk about the incident under threat of a fine. The result was Thomas being seen as the victim, while Allen, who couldn't defend himself, was labeled as the troublemaker. The Phillies kicked Frank Thomas off the team, and they told you know, their young superstar to keep his mouth shut or he'd be fined, and so he wasn't able to tell his side of the story, which was really a, a racial incident. Big, uh, as big as it could be back in those days without talk radio and, and just newspapers, pretty much. It really blossomed with the Frank Thomas incident because it was black against white, you know. And at the time, you didn't really focus on it like that, but that's the way it was, you know. The fan favorite Thomas didn't go out silently. He made one last appearance on his regular morning radio show where he cast the blame on Alan, who still wasn't able to talk about it. The fans picked sides, they picked Frank Thomas. For whatever reasons, so ridiculous, they picked Frank Thomas. Richie Allen was never treated the same from that day on in Philadelphia, and it festered and it got worse and worse. The Thomas incident was a turning point in fans' attitudes towards Allen. Their tensions fueled by a summer of racial divide turned to anger. Suddenly, they felt justified in it. Allen began to deal with jeers constantly.
you know, I was a nine, eight, nine-year-old kid that would go to my dad and say, why, why are they booing Richie? He's, he's our best player. All he does is, is hit the ball. Never did understand it. I didn't know. I just thought, man, they really don't like him. Richard Allen Jr. Never understood as soon as, it, you know, they would hear his name. It just sounded like the whole ballpark was coming down. I, for me, I, it just became normal. And I just remember my sister, when, and we're sitting in the stands, you know, because there, there weren't booths in the suites or anything. So we're, we're in the stands right next to the fans. And, oh, man, they let him have it. And my sister, she covered her ears, and she, and she was yelling, you know, stop, stop booing my dad. And, and you just think it's normal. The Phillies fell out of contention in 1965 and wouldn't get close to another pennant in the 60s. On the field, the abuse toward Allen intensified. The team was terrible in the late 60s. There's nobody there at the ballpark. So a lot of the people that came there came there to boo him probably. All I know is that it did escalate. He wore a helmet uh, all the time when he played. You'll, you'll see how he went from the soft cap to a helmet. And the things were thrown at him and he was he was worried about those kind of things. So guys didn't play with a helmet in those days. They didn't wear a helmet. You know, he was the quote-unquote uppity black guy. He would have opinions on things. It felt like everybody was booing him. I don't know that there were a lot of black fans in Connie Mack Stadium in the 60s. I just know that the city was deeply divided, and I do think that the response was divided along racial lines, and the, you know, the city leaders didn't, do, didn't help much. Off the field, it was even more brutal. He would just, you know, talk about having had his windows shattered in the parking lot coming back after a game or his tires slashed. Allen's family was caught in the crossfire, as his son Richard Jr. remembers. But I was definitely too young to understand why the booze and why a rock went through our front window. And we were just sitting in the front room. The scary part was my sister was sitting right by the bay window. And the rock went through and she just screaming and my mother just picked her up and the car just took off. I mean, you could, I mean, like a, like a race car driver, it took off. And then we got, we were robbed three times in a year and that's, we were coming back from spring training and my mother noticed the downstairs um, curtains blowing. And she said, I know I didn't leave that open. And we went through the garage. It was there were two, two, two television sets, TV sets side by side and the side door opened. So, they must have just left, and then we, we moved to Bucks County because, yeah, it was real scary. It was really scary because they found out we were living, and then we got robbed there. Yeah, there were some, I think, some all-star pieces that were taken. This wasn't one season. It wasn't just a few times. It was years of inescapable abuse. It just kept getting worse and worse to the point where he was very open about, I want out of here. As soon as I can, I want to get out of here. Where he was doing the scrawling in the infield, you know, where he would write, he'd write the date, the last game of the season. He would scribble words around the first base dirt, words like boo, because that's the word he heard all the time. Uh, Mom, because that's the only one in the world who could tell him what to do and that he would listen to. And, and Coke, which was for the Coca-Cola sign on top of the roof at Old County Max Stadium, where he would invariably hit the ball like no one else. He said, I had to figure a way to get out, and that's what he was doing. And they told him to stop writing in the dirt, and then he wrote no. 
<laughs> basically he just he wanted out at that time he just you know there was there were other things and the other things meaning myself and my mother sister and brother he said, you know not knowing if you guys are safe at at home or at the ballpark at the end of the 1969 season Allen finally put an end to it. He was traded from the Phillies and became a St. Louis Cardinal. It was a, really a, tra a tragic, uh, a tragic situation because he was such a brilliant talent. It was, it was, it was really a shame that it had to happen in our city. Allen was an all-star for the Cardinals in 1970. He was traded to the Dodgers in 1971 and he batted 295. In 1972, he was traded for Tommy John to the Chicago White Sox. On the south side, Allen had had his best season yet. It was a relief for his family. And yeah, it was a 360. I mean, they announced the names and man, I mean, people, they would just go crazy. And I didn't even realize at that time that, you know, you know what was going on. I was like, why are they happy and why were they, the other side, so angry at it? I never put it together, but I can still, uh, Nancy Faust with the organ in Chicago playing Jesus Christ Superstar. When he, you know, his, his, his walk-up music. When they used to play that, you know, boy, the hair on my arms would stand up. Dick Allen came in, played for Chuck Tanner. Mike Tolan. The first manager, by his estimation, that really understood him and really let him just be his own man and play his own game. Promptly won the American League MVP award and then won another home run title the next year. Gary Matthews was the 1983 NLCS MVP for the Phillies. You can talk to any pitcher in that era and talk about Dick Allen and ask what type of hitter he was. But winning an MVP really tells you all you need to know uh, about any player. Uh, you don't win that award 162 games with that being luck. Allen stayed at one position, first base, and got to focus on his hitting. He set a team record with 37 home runs in a season. He led the league in RBI, walks, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, and OPS. The Chicago Tribune had even reported his captivating season helped stabilize the franchise, which was rumored to move to St. Petersburg or Seattle. The White Sox were sort of an afterthought and in the long shadow of the Cubs and Nobody was coming to the games, and uh, it was really a, a downtrodden franchise and kind of saved baseball on the south side of Chicago. Allen broke his fibula in 1973, hindering the White Sox hopes for a playoffs and shortening a difficult season. At the end of the year, the White Sox sold his rights to the Braves for $5,000 as Allen questioned his future in the game. He decided to retire and move back to the quiet farm life. It was 10 seasons filled with heroics at the plate that should have been recognized with the greats of his era, like Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. Instead, many chose to focus on that troublemaker narrative that he just couldn't seem to shake. You know, before the fight and before everyone turned on him, I would imagine he was well-liked or well-received. And it seems as though people forgot about that person and they only want to associate him with something negative. I looked at the old cover of Sports Illustrated with him and the Cardinals. One of my favorite ones. He has his hands on his hips and he's with the Cardinals. And you look in the upper right hand 
right-hand corner and it says turmoil. It's like, it's always associated with something wrong or something negative. It's just, and I've said it before, it's just, it's more of a dislike for the person than a like for the player. Well, you know, he's not the guy that everybody thinks he is if they listen to the press. Mike Tolan. Especially the, you know, the wolves of the 1960s Philadelphia sports media. People interpret his demeanor as angry or sullen or militant. And this is, couldn't be farther from the truth. He was quiet. He was reserved. But he was a generous, lovable gentleman. You'll ask the clubhouse attendants, he would hang with them because he could he could relate to them better and he was you know it was just on a human basis and so this misunderstanding which has really given him this aura of danger and anger which has i think something to do with the fact that he's been kept out of cooperstown all these years if you talk to the men who inhabited those clubhouses with him starting with mike schmidt you know by and large dick allen was a great teammate a beloved teammate i uh, was enamored by him. Mike Smith. I don't know. He had a lot of fun on the field when he when he played, quite the opposite of me. I mean, I, mean, I had fun, but I didn't really show it that much. He had a great insight into the intricacies of the game. He could hit the ball to all fields, which I could not do at that point in my career. Um, he actually said he saw a lot of me in him as a young player. And, uh, you know, sometimes if you just get the sense that a great player see so much talent in yourself this kind of gives you a shot of confidence that you wouldn't have had that's the value he was to me and i'm sure to some degree he was that way with a lot of players on our team when uh when dick came on board i think it relieved mike a lot of as far as trying to carry the team dave cash we went to chicago and, and smitty was well he was he was struggling a little bit and dick had a talk with him before you know he let everybody else went out of the club off dick talked with smitty and uh told smitty to go out and have some fun man this the you know, the, the game should be fun. And that day, Smitty hit four home runs. His teammates loved him. But Tony Taylor, Bobby Wine, uh, Jim Bunning, Johnny Callis, Cookie Rojas. You go on and on and on. Uh, Joe Morgan used to talk to me about him. They said there was no more fun guy to come out to the batting cage if you were hanging around to Dick Allen and start laughing and having fun with him infuriates me when I think that, that that people think his teammates didn't like him or that, that when he played with uh, on teams that he that he had problems with teammates you won't find that that he was a great teammate they loved him in the basement of veteran stadium in May of 1975 there was little talk of controversy there was just pure excitement a seven-time All-Star, a Rookie of the Year, and AL MVP was signing with the Phillies once again. Allen wrote a letter to the Braves, the team who held his contract, stating he wanted a trade or he wouldn't play. He got out of his deal, and the Phillies did their best to deny any tampering accusations. He did it after being convinced by men who wanted to be his teammates and wanted him to be back in the city where he got his start. The Phillies were always a part of the Allen family's lives. It made the decision to come back easier. Richard Jr. remembers the frequent visits at their home from the Phillies owner, Ruley Carpenter. He remembers playing chess with Richie Ashburn every time he visited. You know, I did get him one time. 
I, I got it. He went, now wait a minute. And we played again and, you know, he, he said, I got, I gave him a run. So he would come out on a regular to play me in chess. And he always said, you know, Philly's home. I mean, they gave, they, he said, they gave me my first shot. And I think when he went back, he said, Mr. Carpenter made his way out to the batting cage and said, welcome home, son. And he left. He said, he said so, yeah, he, he felt like Philadelphia, you know, was always his family. It, it was his first shot. Larry Shank organized the press conference. And we have, I have pictures of he and Paul Owens and Ruley Carpenter in the press dining room, you know, and uh, Dick Allen's coming back to the Phillies, cut all the media out there. I mean, everybody, you know, it was packed. Mike Schmidt and the Phillies were on a road trip when they got word that Allen was joining their already talented lineup. Actually, funny thing is Dallas Green pitched Dick uh, batting practice for, you know, several days. So Dick was able to work out at that stadium. You know, it took him uh, uh, three or four or five days to feel comfortable. He did some running and throwing and uh, he was going to play first base, of course, when he came. Mm -hmm. uh, they had somebody already playing third base. <laughs> yeah. So in 75, I'm not sure the date, but it was kind of like midseason. He made his debut back at Veterans Stadium. And I'll never forget uh, when he walked out of the dugout in the on-deck circle, and then they introduced him to hit. The fans stood up and gave him the most beautiful standing ovation you would, you would ever want to uh, witness. Of course, you know, he had the helmet and the glasses and the Dick Allen stance and everything was uh, one of the great moments in my career was to watch that. The fans literally were basically apologizing for the history uh, that the Phillies had with Dick Allen back in the early 60s. It was unbelievable because, uh, you know, we really didn't know what kind of reception he was going to get uh, coming back in, although we were we were playing pretty well at that time. Dave Cash. When he walked on the field and, and they gave him that ovation, man, it, was, it, it sent chills down my spine. It was un, unreal, the reception that he got that night when he joined the team. And he, um, I think he hit a two-strike base set up the middle his first time up. Was he hurt inside? Did things bother him? Sure. Was he introspective as his life went on? Yeah. Did he talk about it more? Yeah. But when he came back, I think the fans took care of that because they changed. And then he was a part, a big part of our 76 team that, that wins. We won, a, we won the division and, uh, and went to the playoffs in, in 1976, and he was a part of that. Standing ovation was a gesture of goodwill from the fans. Allen accepted their apology and became a staple within the Phillies organization for years. He was the star of the show at alumni weekends, where past generations met present. He took time to mentor current players and offer advice to young stars in the making. I remember those conversations well. In the fall of 2020, the Phillies organization and front office decided to make a gesture as well. There was a long-standing policy for the Phillies that only players who had been enshrined in baseball's Hall of Fame could have their number retired by the team. Phillies managing partner, John Middleton, who grew up watching Dick Allen in the 1960s, thought the rule was unfair to Dick Allen, whose fight to get to Cooperstown was becoming tedious. Middleton made Allen the exception to the rule. In the left field plaza at Citizens Bank Park, Surrounded by family and farmer teammates, Allen watched as the Phillies unveiled his number 15 
never to be worn again by any Phillies player. The prolific career of Dick Allen remains unmatched in franchise history, both in talent and adversity. Today, the Phillies are proud to pay tribute to number 15, Dick Allen. Should this moment have occurred years ago? Unquestionably, yes. John Middleton. It ensures your inclusion on the list of Phillies immortals. Alexander, Klein, Roberts, Ashburn, Schmidt, Carlton, Bunning, Holiday, and now Allen. You richly deserve this honor, Dick. You have earned it. And no one can ever take this away from you. I thank the city of Philadelphia for this honorable moment. Even though it was rough, I've made some friends along the way. And I'll say it again. Thanks so much, John. It means a lot to me and my family. Thanks so much. Without further ado, the number 15 will take its rightful place above Ashburn Alley, where it will reside in perpetuity in honor of the distinguished career of our friend Dick Allen. With the help of Michael Jack Schmidt, the Phillies will officially retire number 15 on the count of three, two, one. Michael. Dick Allen's Hall of Fame case has become an all-out campaign. His number retirement with speeches from Middleton, Mike Schmidt, and Mike Tolan became a campaign rally. And there's a tremendous case to be made. Allen finished with a higher OPS than 11 Hall of Famers who played in his era, including Willie Mays, Frank Robinson, Willie Stargell, and Roberto Clemente. He ranks 90th all-time with 351 home runs, 55th all-time in OPS at a 9.12, and 42nd all-time with a 5.34 slugging percentage. Those rank way ahead of dozens of Hall of Famers. Allen himself wasn't one for pushing the accolades of his career. Others did it for him, like Richard Jr., who leads the Dick Allen Belongs in the Hall of Fame advocacy group. He told me, can't we call the dogs off and forget this whole thing? And I told him, I said, right about now, Dad, it's a giant snowball. I said, I said it's, about, it's about you, but it's sort of not about you now. I said, there's, there's a lot of people that feel something was wrong or there's something just, something's not right. From what he did and from what other players have said and the guys that he played against, he, he would say, you know, he'd look at the, the Hall of Fame inductees and the guys that are there now and he goes, well, I know I could play with those guys. I do know that. I gave him this analogy. I said, Dad, it's like you're standing in line for a movie and you've been in line for I don't know how many years and people keep cutting in front of you and it's your turn. Dick Allen passed away on December 7th, 2020 at his home in Wampum, Pennsylvania. It was the day after the Golden Era Committee was supposed to vote on the new Hall of Fame class. Allen was one vote short the last time the group voted in 2014. Many thought this would have been the vote that finally got Allen into the hall. That fight continues with a rescheduled posthumous vote set for next year. 
But bigger than the number retirement, bigger than the Hall of Fame, is the legacy Allen left behind for players and fans to come. Jackie Robinson, Dick Allen, Willie Mays, they bared the cross. Gary the Sarge Matthews. And guys that played after that had so much respect for those guys. That is uh, what's so neat about the whole number retirement thing. Mike Smith. When when the fans come back to Citizens Bank Park and uh, dad and his son and are sitting in the stands and they're kind of looking out there and then, you know, daddy, what is, what's that, those numbers on the wall out there for? And then dad starts to explain and uh, talk about the person who wore that number. Probably the most interesting story of all the numbers will be Dick Allen's story. And at every game, that story will be discussed, you know, around the stadium uh, a lot. And if the number wasn't up there, it would just, you know, wouldn't be talked about. And people will will have created their own story about about Dick Allen. And, and I'm sure Jackie Robinson's name will come up. And, you know, he had problems with the fans and this and that. And he got traded and, blah, 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 and all the way up to his number being retired and how things changed over time. It's a really neat story. It's a very neat human interest story. And it's all basically centered around the Phillies putting that story on that wall at Citizens Bank Park. Uh, About two years ago, I was talking to uh, Alumni Weekend, uh, Debbie White, the White's daughter. Richard Allen Jr. She said, aren't you glad neither one of them quit? I said, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Thank you for listening to Leaving a Legacy, the Dick Allen story. I'm your host, Ryan Howard. This episode was written and edited for Philly's podcast by Graham Foley. Thank you to Richard Allen Jr., Mike Schmidt, Chris Wheeler, Larry Shank, Mike Tolan, Dave Cash, and Gary the Sarge Matthews for their contributions to this story. Join the conversation by posting your thoughts on this podcast to the Philly social media pages or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also join the Dick Allen Belongs in the Hall of Fame group on Facebook and check out other engaging audio selections on phillies.com slash podcasts.